You'll be turning with me to the little book, 2 Peter. 2 Peter, the first chapter. We'll look at the final three verses of that first chapter this morning. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1, excuse me, 19 through 21. 2 Peter 1, verses 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This, my friends, is the word of our God. Let's pray. And now, Father, by word and by spirit, meet with us. Speak that we might hear. Open our eyes that we might see. Lord, it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. At a little Baptist church I pastored some 40 years ago, I was asked to sit in in the church's youth Sunday school class to answer some questions. In the course of the questions, I often referenced the Bible, to which a student then replied, the Bible says that, so what? Just because the Bible says it doesn't mean it's true or that I have to listen to it. Now, I was appalled, but keep in mind, I'm 20. Appalled came easier at 20, 19, along in there. I began to explain the importance of biblical authority, but was interrupted by the teacher who indicated that was not the point of the discussion and it was time to move on. I was flummoxed, but went on. College included interacting with professors and fellow students who didn't agree with my position on the Word of God. And I found it just disconcerting. It was alarming to me. I remember a student one time in a psych class, I asked something, the discussion was what makes a healthy personality. And I, I heard this and I heard that. Now, I, I didn't tell you the background. It turned out I didn't have to take some of these psychology classes. I had misread the catalog and thought I had to have them for my second major in history. I still haven't quite forgiven myself for not reading carefully. <laughs> but I had promised myself, knowing the professor, that my practice in the class was shut up, take notes, do your work, keep your head down. Now, I got to admit, that's kind of sad when you were at a Baptist university. But I just didn't want the grief. But one day, and it wasn't long in the class, I mean, we weren't two sessions in. I didn't keep my promise to myself. Because in all the discussion of healthy personality, I didn't hear anything at a Christian university from an ostensibly Christian professor or my ostensibly Christian companions in the class about the place of Christianity and reconciliation with God in the development of a healthy outlook on life. So... Full speed ahead, I raised the question. And to this day, I can still see the young man's face, about two seats, three seats in front of me. He turns around as I've asked the question about 
the application, how does being a Christian have an impact on one's interaction with the world and overall health in that? And with venom, he looked at me and almost screaming, what does that have to do with this? The Lord was kind. I stayed calm. And I think I replied something, well, I think as a Christian, this is an important aspect of what we're talking about. But it wasn't just there. There were professors that had issues with my understanding and others' understanding of Scripture. And as I will address this evening, and if you weren't aware, I'm going to make a few comments and reflections on the latest events in the Southern Baptist Convention tonight. Yes, I, I don't mind. Why not? We'll, we'll, we'll see if we can shed a little bit of light on something that seems to be more heat than light of late. But you see, I lived through the 40-year-ago-now battle for the Bible in the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, and the battle really was over the Bible. What was the nature of Scripture? And those who considered themselves moderates in the convention said, now the Bible contains the Word of God. Well, now I've made a habit of my life, even early on, that words have meaning. And so I pondered that for a bit. The Bible contains the Word of God. Having grown up on a farm, I understood the difference between the bucket and the feed. The bucket held the feed. The bucket wasn't the feed. It contained it. And what I discovered is, those who wanted that position... Wanted to say you can find the Word of God in the Bible, but you cannot equate the Word of God with the Bible. Which then leads you in this rather tenuous circumstance. What parts of the Bible are the Word of God and what parts are not? And how do you discern that? Or, to quote one old preacher, the folks who want to claim the Bible is inspired in spots, and they are inspired to spot the spots. And of course, then the question inevitably comes up, does it matter? Does one's view of the Word of God, of the Bible, matter in any ultimate sense? Now, let me point something out. Apparently, it did to Simon Peter. And apparently, it does to the other writers of Scripture. The Scriptures themselves self-attest that they consider themselves the Word of God. Now, I know somebody said, that's a circular argument, preacher. You start with the Bible to prove the Bible. Let me give you a little lesson in logic here. Give you a little lesson in argumentation when you're talking about your first principles, about how you determine what is true and false, how you think through life, all reasoning is circular. It is inevitable. 
No, I'm a rationalist. I think the human mind, uh, it has to be provable to the human mind. Behold the circle. I will presuppose my mind is sufficient for the task. Thus, that becomes the standard by which I judge things true, false, right, wrong. Same problem. It's circular. But folks, there's no way to have reasoning without it. Somewhere you have to come up with your first principles of how you arrive at conclusions. Or, I've used this term before, what are your presuppositions? What do you presuppose to be true? And then the outcome is which of those turns out to explain life as we see it in this world the most reasonably, the most uh, redemptively. So the Scripture for Simon Peter is God's revelation to man and not man's description of God. Now last time we considered the true historical reality of our faith. That along with Simon Peter we would affirm, as he says in verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Everything Peter is affirming is anchored in actual historical realities. The apostles were eyewitnesses and earwitnesses of these things. He specifically cites the matter of the transfiguration. We are affirming unapologetically that we believe in the reality of the events recorded in the text of Scripture. John Frame, in his massive The Doctrine of the Word of God, said it this way, For biblical faith, everything turns on the historical events of creation, fall, and redemption. Everything turns on those historical events. Creation, fall, redemption. I'd extend that even a bit further to say, It depends on a yet future event, consummation. That has not yet been. But as we noted before, every time you want to approach life, you have to answer these questions. How did we get here? What went wrong? How do you fix it? And where are we going? That is the essence of the Christian understanding of this world. We are not self-created. God made us. We sinned, and there's the problem. God sends His Son, there's the solution. And everything's headed to the judgment seat of God Almighty. That's the outcome. My friends, when I read this text, it points out here is, in, in essence, our problem over and over again. The beginnings of our failure and faith can inevitably be traced to a declining confidence in the Scriptures, the Word of God. That is inevitably the starting point. Whether you're talking deconstruction, whether you're talking critical theories, whatever it is you're dealing with, and maybe somebody's not even got enough uh, knowledge to understand what any of that stuff is about, But when you start to doubt the veracity, the applicability of the Word of God, of the Scriptures, you have taken the first step down the road to some version of apostasy. That's where you're going. 
The Scriptures are God's Word. They don't merely contain God's Word. They actually are God speaking. What Scripture says, God says, to quote Augustine. So what does Simon Peter tell us here? Number one, the certainty of Scripture. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you'll do well to pay attention. (laughs) I'd underline that. You do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter looks back to a prophetic heritage, a prior revelation. There is a word from the prophets. This prophetic word was pointing toward Jesus Christ. The Old Testament ends without completion. It ends without a fulfillment. In fact, it ends with the idea of a curse. It closes without salvation. It closes with the people who are ultimately in captivity and going to be in captivity again. It closes in sorrow and it closes in hope. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that point to the Messiah. The estimates I read, somewhere around 350 to 360 separate prophecies that point toward the Messiah. The examples include, and this is just touching on a fraction, one sees it in Genesis, the third chapter, what is called the Proto-Euangelion, the opening gospel, the word to Eve, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman shall crush the serpent's head. The serpent's seed shall bruise his heel. The first hope of redemption. The 110th Psalm, the Lord Jehovah, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit on my throne until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And the New Testament is filled with references back to that 110th Psalm as being about Jesus. Or even more, say the 53rd chapter of Isaiah bruised for our iniquities, wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement brought us peace. By his wounds, we're healed. Peter, now. And folks, think about good old son Peter and these guys. The motley crew. I love this bunch. They, They look like me. Makes me feel better. Lord can use all sorts of scoundrels. I just find that astonishing. And they're hoping, and their hope, and now remember, it, it's a little skewed, it's a little messed up. They, they, they don't know what to do with this idea of a, of a Messiah dying. That just doesn't compute. That was like talking about hot ice and cold fire. It simply didn't make any sense to them. And yet they hang on because what they're seeing is is alerting them and alarming them and giving them hope. They look at the prophecies and they, oh, look at there. Hmm. It's him. And then the stuff they didn't anticipate, walking on water, calming storms, healing people, feeding thousands. I mean, the whole thing is just stunning. 
But when they see him die, they scatter. Why do they scatter? Because they don't know what to do with it. Now we, we arrogantly said, well, I'd have been okay. No, you wouldn't have. You, you cannot treat them like somehow these horrific failures, they failed, yeah. And you would have too. If you'd have known what they knew, you would have seen what they'd seen, you would not have done any different than they did. The resurrection turns everything upside down. And they're trying to figure out how this whole thing works, and Simon Peter can look back and say, here's what the prophets were pointing to, and I finally get it. They're pointing to this time, and they're pointing to a future time. There's two things going on. There's the first advent, there's the second advent. He then ties it to the word, notice how he describes it, You'll pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. And just before that, this prophetic word more fully confirmed. What did he mean, more fully confirmed? They had been eyewitnesses to the fulfillment. They are seeing in this Jesus the fulfillment of these prophecies. This was what confirmed it for them. It wasn't just that Jesus showed up. It was that Jesus showed up and this was seen as the fulfillment of that. His arrival, his actions, what he did, fulfilled the prophecies. And so they see it in this context. This is the same thing that Paul will relate. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, this is stunning, is it not? Here's a fellow who has that Damascus Road experience. That's everybody wants to describe it, right? He's on the Damascus Road. He's off to persecute Christians, and Jesus interrupts. Now, there's no question this was earth-shattering. He is stunned. You've got to know there was no person in all of history more surprised than Saul of Tarsus when he heard, I am Jesus whom you persecute. What? I, I think that might be an alternate reading somewhere in the text. Don't know. <laughs> you had, <laughs> my heart, first thing I'm thinking is, uh-oh. This isn't going to turn out well for me. And, and Paul talked a lot about his conversion, but my friends, in 1 Corinthians 15, listen to this. I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now hear this. For I delivered to you as of first importance, not my conversion story, not my testimony. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What's that? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul interpreted his experience in light of the historical realities of what Jesus had done and who he was. He didn't start with his experience, he started with the truth. 
Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, was buried, raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Then He appeared, and He appears here, 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 here. This one, this one, this bunch, this bunch, here, here. Oh, and by the way, me. Now, why should that matter? Because of the exhortation. Do well to pay attention, pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. The picture of the dawn, of the day star, often used to reference Venus. Now, understand that Peter's not saying that Venus rises in your heart. This is not some crazy 70s rock music song. All right? We're not talking about the dawning of the age of Aquarius, and some of you are not old enough to know, have any idea what I just said. And that's all right. It's probably in your best interest. He is the dawn. He's the day star. And the scriptures attest to him. See, folks, this is how you come to know him. I'm not saying that there aren't times where he intervenes in ways that are beyond our ken. I, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that overall, though, he comes to us through his word. June 27th, 1819. Now, some of you are thinking back. I don't think anybody here is going to get this one. Adoniram Judson baptized his first convert in Burma. His wife, Anne, described how, and I'm, I'll try to pronounce this, Maung Nao had responded to the Scriptures. That was the fellow's name. A few days ago, I was reading with him Christ's Sermon on the Mount. He was deeply impressed and unusually solemn. Now, this quote is fascinating to me. These words, said he, take hold on my liver. They make me tremble. Now, you know, Americans, we talk about your heart. <laughs> he had a much more old world, his guts. <laughs> These words take hold of me internally. They make me tremble. God spoke through his word. And my brothers and sisters, it appears that one day, Maung Nao, will be a brother we'll meet in glory who heard that word of God. You see, the divine revelation is the promise of the messianic kingdom. This revelation to which we pay attention is to understand this is how people are converted. This is what has happened to us. This word has come. Whether it's Maung Nao in Burma in the early part of the 19th century or Martin Luther in the 1500s when he said, reading Romans 1, 16 and 17. Uh, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped the justice of God is that righteousness by which through faith and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. Jonathan Edwards, 1 Timothy 1.17. That first instance that I remember, that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I've lived much in since, 
was on reading these words, now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As I read those words, there came into my soul a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense quite different from anything I ever experienced before. Never any words of Scripture seemed to me as these words did. My friend, I say this to us, that we would take seriously what it means when we talk of the certainty of Scripture. And the Scriptures are certain because of the source of Scripture. Verses 20 and the first part of 21. Knowing this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. The source of the interpretation is the Scripture. Now, I'm going to point out, verse 20 is a little bit difficult to understand. As you dig into this, the way it is uh, translated, it, it, it isn't exactly jumping out what he's saying. Literally, what it says is the first knowing, this first knowing that all prophecy of Scripture doesn't become from its own interpretation. Now, what is Peter trying to say here? Is he saying the prophet was not operating on his own understanding of the prophecy? Is that what he's saying? Is he saying that interpretation shouldn't be left up to individuals, but ought to be done by the Holy Mother Church? That's the Roman Catholic understanding. Or is he saying the individual may not interpret the prophecy on his own, on his own whim? Scripture interprets Scripture. Now, I'm going to rule out number two immediately because I don't think Peter had in mind anything about the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church interpreting Scripture. One is a possibility. He could be saying prophets didn't do this on their own. They had to be revealed. I think it's more likely that he's saying it's not up to you to play with this text and come up to whatever you come up with on a whim. Uh, John Piper, I think, gets this right. It's a warning not to play fast and loose with the meaning of Scripture. The reason I opt for this is the false teachers, which Peter has in view, didn't apparently deny the inspiration of the prophets, but rather twisted the message and the writings to suit their own false teaching. We know Peter had false teachers in mind here because the next sentence in chapter 2, verse 1, false prophets also arose among the people. See, my friend, the danger here is that we must not interpret the Scripture. While we can do, and please hear what I'm saying, I'm not telling you don't read the Bible on your own. Please read the Bible. Please study the Bible. Don't take anybody's word for it. But sola scriptura, Scripture alone, doesn't mean solo scriptura, that you interpret the Bible by yourself. You understand there's a certain degree of arrogance in that. As though 2,000 years of biblical interpretation hadn't already happened and it didn't get done right till you showed up. Ooh. There's a hazard here. It's a, if you're not careful, we end up with something. Uh, one brother shared the story of Andrei Vizhinsky, who was the Russian foreign minister at the time. And he was walking along a major thoroughfare in Paris on a bright, sunshiny day, and he had an umbrella over his head. And someone said, Mr. Vizhinsky, why have you got your umbrella up? 
And he said, well, because Radio Moscow says it's raining. Now, we don't just affirm it because somebody before us affirmed it. But we have to have this dynamic where we look at the Scripture and we look at the rest of Scripture and we listen to others who interpret it. It is also the understanding that Scripture explains Scripture. This is the analogy of faith. I know some of you just dying to hear it in Latin. Scripturum ex scriptura explicandum esse. Well, maybe you weren't dying to hear it. Scripture is to be explained by Scripture. The source is never man. Man's instrumental. He's not the source. Men didn't sit down with the decision, I think I'll write Scripture today. The source of Scripture is always God. Knowing that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God. Now what's the balance here? How do we do this? Are we saying that the writers of Scripture were in essence pens, metaphorically speaking, in the hands of God, entirely passive? Did the prophets and apostles go into some kind of a trance and black out and start writing and then wake up and go, wow, look at there, word of God. Huh. No. We are saying that God, being God, can in his providence and in his oversight take individuals, providentially lead them through life, through their experiences, their language, their abilities, their capacities, and then so work in them through the Scripture that by the work of the Spirit of God, He can cause them in their own way, their own abilities, to write that which is His Word. It's a little bit like this. I never thought of that. This this. This one got a hold of me this week. Wow. Our view of Scripture is a bit like our view of the incarnation. What do we affirm when we talk about the incarnation of Jesus? What do we say? Was Jesus truly human? There's a good place to be nodding, folks. Yes, he was. Was Jesus truly God? Yes, he was. Now, if those things are true, one at the same time, this is what you end up affirming. A human nature and a divine nature in one person. Now, this is mystery and it's difficult, but this is orthodoxy. Okay? So let's stop there. You see, we're affirming something similar, parallel in the Scriptures. The Scripture's source is God. But God brings that to us through human instruments. And once again, you have this kind of a uniting. Not calling it an incarnation. Don't quote me as that. I did not say that. I'm saying, my friend, that God and man are at work in the Scripture. And thus, we see in Jesus... In his human historical context, this is J.I. Packer, 
we study his recorded words as the sayings of a first century Jew if we grasp the message to us as words of God. So it is in interpreting the words of the Bible. Therefore, inquiry into the linguistic, cultural, historical, and theological background of the various parts of Holy Scripture and the outlooks and aims of the respective authors must be welcomed as a necessary discipline if the Bible is to be rightly understood. The glorious truth in this verse is God has spoken and not merely man. Now let me take this a step further. We have considered the certainty of Scripture, the source of Scripture. I'd have you consider this briefly. The inspiration. Men spoke from God as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. How do we get from God as the source to the actual Scripture themselves? How did thus saith the Lord get into written form to us? What does he tell us? They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The picture here is picking them up and aiding them, carrying them. This is what we mean by inspiration. This is what we say in our confession of faith. We believe the Bible, the Old and New Testament, is the written Word of God, verbally and plenarily inspired, inerrant and infallible in the original manuscript. The authority of Scripture and its sufficiency extends to the entire Bible and reveals the principles by which God will execute judgment. The Scriptures are God's truth and are totally sufficient and trustworthy in all matters of faith and practice. They are the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried for all time. This echoes 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture literally is breathed out by God. So it leads to these affirmations. The Bible is inspired by God. That's the first. The second one, the Bible is verbally inspired by God. I've dealt with the folks, well, he inspired the thought but not the words. How do you express thought without words? Third, the Bible is fully verbally inspired by God. Plenary inspiration, fully inspired. Fourth, the Bible is thus inerrant and infallible, which leads us to fifth. The Bible is our sole authority, sola scriptura. Now why? I know you're saying, okay, Doug, great. Why does this matter? Because, my friend, the enemy's assault today is on the matter of authority. And the attack is on this issue. Now, I'll let you have a secret. It's never been any different. The attack may look different in its expression, but there has always been the attack of the enemy on the integrity of the Word of God. This goes back to Genesis and the temptation. Has God said? And so we find ourselves... In this era of deconstruction. And I asked this last time, and I'm going to ask it again here, and this is a good question, young people, for you to ask, older folks too, but great question to ask. Why is it that deconstruction always leads to the same place? 
Why is it that the deconstruction almost overwhelmingly always ends up affirming whatever the culture is doing right now? That ought to make you suspicious that maybe somebody's rigged the game. Hear these words. There's a great little book by Kevin DeYoung called Taking God at His Word. I found this so encouraging. Think about this. Before chucking the faith you were taught as a child, think about those from whom you learned it. This is testimony. I went to to a middle-of-the-road Christian college where the religion professors were often liberal. I saw many of my classmates have their faith deconstructed and never built up again in a healthy way. When people ask me why I didn't go down the same path, the best answer I have, besides noting the grace of God, is that I trust my parents and my upbringing more than my professors. I had doubts as a college student. There were new questions I didn't know how to answer, but what kept me anchored with confidence in what I'd learned as a child and in those was those from whom I'd learned it. My friends, let me say this plainly. If you want to know the way of salvation, hear the word of the Lord. Christian, if you want to grow in Christ, you need to hear and heed this word. This needs to shape your thinking. Quote Mr. Spurgeon's reference to Bunyan, you prick him anywhere and he bleeds bibline. You hit Bunyan anywhere and you got Bible. That's what should be us. In our thinking, in our acting, everything about us, that the Word of God speaks to us. Now, I reference back to the garden, but my friend, understand, Adam and Eve initially are told by God, and this is God's Word. Eat anything you want in the garden. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. You can have anything here. Don't touch that. Don't eat that. Don't eat that. That's the word of God. And as long as they heeded that word, they were fine. The minute they adhered or for a moment entertained, hath God said. The temptation then became autonomy. I will now determine right and wrong. I know people say, well, we're living in a new era. We're all ready to figure it out for ourselves. My friend, there's nothing new in this. This has been the human condition time immemorial. And whether it grew out of the heresies of the early era or whether it grew out of the liberalism and the humanism of bygone eras or whether it grows out of modernism in our own lifetimes or now postmodernism and deconstruction, all of it comes down to this. All of them are some attempt for humans to define their own life and reality. I'll do what I want to do when I want to do it, and here's my justification for it. And by the way, you better get on board. You have noticed that, haven't you? It's no longer, we just want to be free to do this. No, we want to be free to do it, and you better applaud. 
And my friends, the outcomes are so horrific. For you see, the end of that, my friend, is several billion selfish, self-centered, self-directed. You, you hear the common word and all that? Self, 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 self. And what happens when yourself and myself start having a conflict? Behold, war, violence, hatred, the destruction of entire culture. You have a more sure word. God has spoken. He's spoken his word. And that word comes to you, and do not be ashamed of this, in a book. Why is that weird? The God who verbally speaks a universe into existence, lo and behold, he has spoken. He calls his son the very word itself, and then he points us to a book. Not because there's something magical in the book. The book is the book. Some leather, some real nice paper, a little bit of ink. This is God speaking. Will you hear? 